Hey, recently I was out at dinner with my family, and we came up with this conversation topic of a supermarket sweepstakes kind of thing, a Costco edition. Okay, if you're unfamiliar with this, it just means that basically minutes to go into Costco, and money was no limit, and you could go buy anything you want, whatever you could fit into your cart, okay? Here's the only stipulations in our conversation. You had to use it. It had to be for you, meaning you can't resell it, you can't give it away. What would you get? That was the conversation. And so we went around the table, and my wife said she would go immediately to the frozen food section and stock up on gluten-free pizza. Okay, you have to be able to eat gluten-free pizza from Costco. My brother-in-law said I would go right to the front. I'd get the biggest, the smartest, the thinnest TV Costco had that I could buy. I said I would grab an electric bike at the front and ride it all the way back to the golf section and look at that Callaway Strata golf club section. And my kids, they said that they would get candy and a Squishmallow. It's kind of fun to dream about what you could get if money was no object, right? It's fun to think about what we would do if we were richer. There was a poll recently that I looked up and I found on the internet, and it's just one of those ridiculous polls, but it gave out these ridiculous scenarios. Would you do this, and if you did this, you would be rewarded $50 million? Of the couple thousand people that took this poll, 53% that they would listen to country music for the rest of their life. Not worth it, in my opinion. 43% said that they would have their teeth removed. I would say that's worth it. I could drink a cheeseburger through a straw for $50 million. Come on, it'll be good. Okay, this is kind of getting a little bit sad. 50% said they would take it knowing that one random person somewhere in the world would die if they took it. Stand if that's you. No, I'm just kidding. It's okay. Even worse than that, 22% said they would only eat plain oatmeal for the rest of their lives. And 7% said they would never bathe or use deodorant again. That had to be a bunch of middle schoolers, I think. <laughs> My guess is that most of us would like to be richer so that we were more free to do what we want. Why would we want more money? We want to do what we want, when we want, without worrying about the consequences, about racking up debt or having to save or being good stewards. We just want to be able to go and have whatever we'd like. Yes, the guacamole and queso without having to think about it. I like to go where I want, buy whatever catches my eye, do whatever sounds fun, live my life how I've always dreamed without ever having to worry about the consequences of money. But if you've ever had a paycheck, you received a raise, gotten a bonus, received a financial gift on your birthday, found 20 bucks on the street, you know the truth about money is that it really cannot buy you contentment. It really cannot buy you. Money certainly can buy fun, how many has ever done something that cost money and it was fun? You guys, come put your hands in the air. I just said, how many of you spent money to do something fun? Absolutely all of us have done something that's fun with money. I just lost my note. I can't believe this. Money certainly can be fun. It certainly can buy distractions. It certainly can numb us from life. It certainly can remove us from the things that are happening. But the one thing that money cannot do is make you happy. The only thing that can make you happy is more. Bigger house, new phone, fresh clothes, upgrade the car, another whatever, another sip, another walk, another image, another piece of cake. Nothing can fulfill me, can satisfy my desire except for more. 
The reason that is is because your desire is infinite. Desire has no cap. It is a void that has no filling. You would have to be able to experience everything there is to be content. You'd have to sleep with every partner in the world. You'd have to go and watch every movie, listen to every song, experience everything, eat everything, travel everywhere. They do everything in life because desire is infinite. Money can't buy you contentment. Jimmy Car- Jim Carrey says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Jesus says it this way. In Matthew 16, he said to his disciples, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And very well known to us, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? We are people that are born with have desire, infinite desire. We have a void, a longing inside of us. And all of us on our pursuit of trying to fill that void, to satisfy, to find peace, to have contentment, to have a satisfied, fulfilled life. But if you've ever had money and trying to throw money at that void, you know that it it cannot be fulfilled. Have you ever wanted something so badly, dreamed about it, up for it, only to get it and to realize a month later that there's something better else out there that you would like? You have an infinite void inside of you, and the only thing that can fulfill that, to give you that satisfied good life, is a finite God. You have a void, a longing inside of you, something to say, Lord, there's something more to this life. And the only thing that will fulfill that is God. This series, we've called it getting the most kind of a, uh, uh, cheeky of me, but saying just getting the most out of church, getting the most out of your investment, out of your time, out of your energy spent in church. But really, this series has been less about you doing more stuff, and it's all about just saying the groundwork or foundation for beginning discipleship in your life. We've brought up four priorities or, or four practices to implement in your life the last month. All of these things are designed to start pushing you into God's presence, to be pushing you towards intimacy with God, to be pushing you away from filling the void with stuff or things or time or things you think will help you towards a God that definitely will. Before we get to today's topic, main topic of giving generously, um, I want to just spend a little bit more time talking about discipleship and what that looks like. I want to talk about the cycle of the normal Christian life. And this is taken from Pastor Tyler Stanton out of Bridgetown Church. I think we have those slides hopefully back there. But there's this normal cycle that a Christian will find themselves in discipleship. The very first one is that you get inspired. You go to church, you encounter God, you have an experience, you see something. There's something in you, a desire for more. I want to be better. I want to be more peaceful. I want to be more loving. I want to whatever. And you are inspired to be better. How many has ever met somebody, heard a talk, read a Bible passage, experienced something that inspired you to go beyond yourself for more? You should all be raising your hand on that one again, too. It's not a trick question, guys. If you've ever had a superhero like Batman or Spongebob or whatever, you've had a desire to be more. Maybe not Spongebob. 
And so the natural thing is, is that you get inspired. And so what do you do? You go and try harder. This is the picture of a husband and wife who've had a major fallout. You work too much. You spend too much. You don't listen to me. You don't love me. A major fallout with lust or adultery. Something happens in the relationship. So he says, babe, I'm going to try harder. That's not me anymore. I'm going to get better. And so we get inspired by something, whether good or bad, to become more, to be better. And so we're going to apply our will to that thing to become better, and we're going to try hard. And maybe it lasts for a day, maybe it lasts for a week, maybe it lasts for a month or a couple of years, but we know that trying harder is not the answer. How many people, again, this should be every single person in here, not your questions today, how many people have ever had a New Year's resolution, resolution that you broke? Yeah. Some mighty saints in here holding out and putting their hands up in the air, but we're going to get you by the end of the service. Amen? <laughs> Amen? We're a responsive church, amen. So you try harder, but why doesn't it work? Because your willpower is a diminishing resource. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to say no to a donut or to a piece of cake or an oatmeal cream pie in the morning? But then how easy it is to say yes to a carton of ice cream, too many glasses of wine, staying up too late at night. Over time, your willpower, your ability to make choices, it's a diminishing resource. So over the course of the day, it's harder and harder to abstain from the things that you don't want to do. And over time, it's harder and harder for you to become the person you want to be just by trying harder. How many people, have you ever tried this? I'm going to kick this thing, whatever it is, by just trying really hard. And you do really, really well for a little bit. But then life gets really stressful. Let's just, I'm going to eat really clean this year. And so you buy the plan, you make the plans, you, you meal prep, you do all the things, you, you buy the gym membership, you start going and putting in all of the work, but then what happens about a month later? Life gets busy. You didn't get to the store. The subscription is costing too much money, whatever. And then slowly over time, you begin to fall back into the normal practices that cause you to get to this place, this decision-making in the first place. So our will diminishes, some more goes away. And what happens then is that the normal Christian feels guilt. How I hear this in the church from every age, every grade, every year I've ever, ever worked in ministry is, man, I, I know that I should be reading my Bible more. I know that I don't pray as much as I should. I know that I don't show up as church as much as I should. I know that I'm not the Christian I'm supposed to be. And the fallout from failure or trying harder is guilt. I feel guilty. I feel shamed. And that naturally spirals into disillusionment. I can't be the type of person that I wanted to be. I can't be that loving person. I can't be that patient person. I can't be that person that prioritizes church every week. I can't be that person that whatever you wanted to be. And then the cycle continues. You get inspired and you try and you feel guilty and we feel disillusioned. And so if you take this away though, and what we're trying to do and implementing over the last couple of weeks is put in a new cycle in our life. A cycle not of trying harder, but a cycle of a way to become like Jesus. 
If, if that doesn't work, so again, Tyler Stanton, we see the cycle of a, a spiritual maturity instead replacing this old cycle. We see something, seeing is very similar to inspiration, but it's maybe a little bit more of an experience. I don't just see somebody encountering God, I experience God. I got out of my seat and I came up and put my hand and I asked for prayer right here. I put my hand in the air and asked for Jesus to come into my life and gave him my life. I, I saw and I experienced something that I want to become more. And so I experienced that and I see that and I want to become like that. So how do we get there? Instead of trying to implement practice into our life. Again, Tyler Stanton, we mature by training, not by trying. 1 Corinthians 9 says it this way. Paul says, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. If you've ever done anything in your life, you understand this principle. Is that we don't just try really hard to become and do something really well. It takes practice to get there. I worked in a factory at one point in my life, and it was a stamping factory, and one of my jobs was to drive the fork truck around and to pick up things and deliver it and stuff like that. And on this particular fork truck, um, it, you didn't face the direction you were going. The controls were here, and the front of the truck was this way. So you had to drive like this. On top of that, on your normal car that you drove here to church today, when you turn, the front tires turn. On a fork truck, the back tires turn. So not only are you not looking forward or facing forward, you're looking this way, you're facing this way, looking this way, and the front tires aren't turning, the back tires aren't turning. What happens is, is that you're trying to go right, and the whole thing goes left. You try to back up, and you go really wide. And you just see for the first month, couple of weeks, around the warehouse, trying to figure out. You drop parts, you run into things, you squish people. It's all part of the normal thing. There's your insurance for that. But you know, after about a month or so, you could put that thing anywhere you want. We could jump on that truck and drive anywhere. We could pick up a piece of rice with those fork trucks, with those things. We could put, put stacks of, uh, huge, huge stacks, these pallets of parts, two stories up without even thinking about it. Why? Because we practice it every single day for hours upon hours. You're in that truck driving and getting used to it because practice puts us and positions us for the, where we want to grow. Practice is very similar to what an a, a, a arborist would do by taking a vine and putting it on a trellis and trying to say, this is the direction that I want to grow. This is the direction I want to grow. So when you practice something, you're saying, I'm going to position myself to go this way. I remember a basketball coach telling me, he's saying, if you want to get higher ups, I want you to start, I want you to start practicing jump rope. So I, I don't want to do jump rope. I want to be able to dunk the ball. Pretty hard for somebody of my stature. And so he said, I don't care. What I want you to do is I don't want you to just try that. I want you to start doing this and practicing this. And what over the course of time, those muscles began to get harder. Those high-impact muscles began to get stronger, and I was able to jump higher. I never even touched the rim. Don't believe that. But I was able to jump a little higher than I was at the beginning of the season. Amen? I got amens on that, but I didn't. <laughs> There's no way he can touch the rim. Amen. Okay. So we see, we practice, and all of the practices, when you come up to spiritual disciplines, when you come up to spiritual habits, spiritual formation tactics, all of this is about positioning you and getting you into the presence of God. 
It's easy with our legalistic mindsets to think, I didn't read my Bible enough and so I'm a bad person. I didn't read, I didn't pray enough this week. No, you didn't practice hard enough. So let's practice some more because the point is to not get you to pray more, to read more, to fast more, to give more, to serve more, to show up at church more. The point is to get you into the kingdom of God and to get you into God's presence. The point of the trials for the grapes is not to just get them to grow taller or to bear fruit. The point is to, oh, sorry, the point is to get them to bear fruit. <laughs> we want to get you into God's presence. We want to get you next to the person that can bless you. John 10.10 10 says it this way in the ESV. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The result of when you can get close to God into his presence is that you begin to experience God. They begin to know God, and that means a blessed life. The result of a satisfied, is a satisfied life, a peaceful life, a content life. That void in you begins to experience something that can actually satisfy you. And that is the process of discipleship. Discipleship is pushing you into the presence of God giving you things to pattern yourself, build your life on, guardrails to keep you safe, to get you into God's presence. The point of spiritual disciplines or discipleship is not that you would have more to do or for the disciplines themselves. All of it is about pushing you forward to where you want to go and to where you, which direction you want to grow. Amen? Richard Foster says the purpose of the disciplines is liberation from the stifling slavery of self-interest and fear. The purpose of disciplines is liberation from the stifling slavery to self-interest and fear. The person that's not disciple to Jesus is probably, probably predominantly focused on the things going on in their own life, the things that are affecting their own spiritual life, and the unknown things of the future. The disciple of Jesus that uses prayer and fasting, showing up at church, living in community, serving and giving, all of these things position you and put you in a place where you can get into God's presence to stop worrying about getting your own way and stop being scared of what's going to happen in the future. The result of all of these things puts you in a place of where you're growing in love of God. And where you can feel and experience more and more of God's presence in your life. I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 10 with me today. And we're going to break down a story that illustrates this. Mark chapter 10. And we're going to start in verse 17. If you have your own physical Bible, pull that out. If you have your phone Bible, that's fine. Pull that out too. But I want you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10 verses 17. We're going to break this down a couple of verses at a time. It says, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to in, uh, inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is good, truly good. And so the very first thing I want to notice is this man's posture. He runs up, eager to come to Jesus. But you're going to find out here in just a little bit, he doesn't run up just unawares. He runs up knowing that he's been doing the right things, knowing he's been checking the right boxes, knowing that he's done everything he's supposed to do. But he runs up and he nails down and he says, there's something in me that's just telling me that I'm not doing everything right yet. 
Can you just affirm for me that I'm going to make it into heaven? And I've earned my right there. Verse 19. But to answer your question, this is Jesus, to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat on anyone. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus, in response to him, he recites the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the foundation for the Levitical law, the moral code that's guided God's people ever since they were released from slavery in Egypt hundreds of years ago. For us, we could say it this way. Are you going to church? Are you involved in small groups? Do you serve in Stonehaven? Do you give your tithe? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Okay. You've hit the minimums. You've hit the things that we just expect of a Christian, a follower of Jesus to hit. You've hit those things. Good. And so the man pushes on. Teacher, I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. <sighs> Pass the test. Ask the rabbi. Ask the teacher. Have I done everything I need to do to get what I want? Whew. Passed. I went, had to renew my driver's license this year. And part of it was I had to take a written exam for a motorcycle test. And uh, I haven't taken it in probably eight years. And so I, I got the manual, the test guide, and I read through it and studied and made sure. And it was such a relief when I got there and had to take the test. I was like, oh, I know this answer. I've done this work. I know it. Check, 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 check. Done. Give me my thing and I can leave. The man's done the work. He showed up. He, he's put, ever since he was young, he knows the right laws. He knows the things to do. Most of us could probably know what it is to be a good Christian. Most of us know what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. I know what it's supposed to look like, and I can check those off. I know what that looks like. Verse 21, I love it here. Jesus, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Why didn't Jesus just jump right to this point? He feeds the man the things that he wants to hear. How do I inherit eternal life? Well, follow the commandments. I've done that. And then Jesus, looking at him, sees that he's still missing something in his life. He feels this genuine love for him. Remember, discipleship is rooted in love. Discipleship is proven by a growing love for God and for other people. Discipleship is driven out of a place of love for us. So Jesus felt love for the man because he recognized that he was selling himself short of the fullness of life. Remember that thing that we read a little bit earlier that Jesus came to give us that abundant, that satisfying life? There was more that this man was missing out on and he was leaving himself short, selling himself short. One of the ways that me and my wife, when we go out on a date, we have an opportunity to go out on a date, one of the things that we really like to do is to set up a progressive line of places to go. We'll find, we'll map things out. We'll go to this restaurant for an appetizer, and then we're going to go here for the uh, dinner, then here for the dessert, and all of these things factor into it. Atmosphere and live music and where it's going on and what's going to be the most fun and stuff, and every part of it, almost every time, has just been amazing. That's the best whatever, queso or whatever uh, uh, appetizer I've ever had. The music was so good. The atmosphere was so fun. But what happens if we just stop short right there? What happens if you get all the way up just through the appetizer and say, oh, man, that was good. But there's more. Keep going. Push on. There's something else. you got to keep going. There's another step if you just keep going. But sometimes we just stop right there. Oh, I've obeyed all the commandments. I've done the bare minimum. I've checked the boxes. I'm good. 
But there's more to the fulfilled, the satisfying life, the abundant life. Keep pushing on. And you see Jesus trying to pull this man from just the, the thing he's at right now. With genuine love, he said, there's more. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all of your possessions. Give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at this. I'm good about doing the things that I know are easy to do, the things that I'm willing to do, but reserving that one thing that's more important than everything. I followed all these commands. I've done all these things. I've come all the way up into the line, but there's still one thing. Jesus says. I worked at a summer camp for a while. And one of my jobs there was to be the high ropes guy. And so I would go up and I would clip these kids onto a zip line and I'd push them off the edge into midair and they'd just fly down the zip line and it would just be awesome. And so what you would do is you would have a kid and you would get them and you put the harness on. Put this harness on them, make sure it's all safe, put the hat on and make sure that's tight in the right place. Give them these things called the lobster claws. It's this rope that has two handles so you can climb safely and get up to the, the high part safely. So then they get all the way zipped in. They get all the way up there. I double check them. Make sure everything's tight. Clip them into the line that's going to take them off and have so much fun. And the kids get all the way to the very edge. And this happened many, many times where a kid gone through the whole process, done everything they should, got to the very top. There was just one last thing to do. All they had to do was step over the edge and go. But many, many, many kids stopped one step short from the next best thing. They said, no, that's too far. It's not worth the cost. It's not worth the effort. It's not worth worth the work I've put in to get this far. And they retreat, and they go back down the way they came, unzip, take the hat off, take the harness off, and they go home without ever having to experience something that their parents paid an extra $100 for them to do. (laughs) They go home lacking that experience of the next good, best thing. Here Jesus is trying to call this young man, trying to call this rich ruler into the next best thing. You've done so many good things. You've made it all the way up here to the very line, but there is one thing that is holding you back, and that's your love of money. There is one thing that you need to release still. Go, sell, give, and then follow me. Your one thing, my one thing, may not be money. For today's purposes, we are talking about finances, but I would guess that many of us, most of us, all of us, have that one thing. Lord, I've done all these other things. I've been coming to church more regularly. I, I signed up to serve. I joined a small group. I even give tithe, but... There's this relationship that I'm holding on to. I'm going to preserve my sexual desires and keep indulging in a way that I know is not right. I'm going to hold on to this bitterness and unforgiveness towards that person that wronged me. I'm going to hold on to this anger. I'm going to hold on to this resentment. I'm going to hold on to that one thing. So that one thing from the fullness of God. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
This amazed them, but Jesus said again, Dear children, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they said. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it's impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Here's what Jesus is not doing. He's not teaching the disciples that they should be poor. He's not teaching the disciples to rely on the financial wealth for other people to provide for them. He's not teaching them that they should live in poverty. What he's teaching the disciples that what we humans like to do is be able to control our lives. I would like to be able to control my destiny and do the things I want to do and get into heaven the way I want to get into heaven. I will do this, 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 and this, but I will not cross that line. I will not step over that edge. I will not give that last thing. What Jesus is trying to teach them and bring them to is that salvation is not something that we can attain by just our own effort. God, I'm a pretty good person. Have I done enough for you? Have I followed you enough? Have I sacrificed enough? Have I suffered enough? Almost in the kingdom of God is not enough. God demands, and we're going to get into this a couple of weeks from here, but Scripture says that God is a jealous God. A good way to think about that is that a wife would be jealous of her husband's affections. A husband would be jealous of his wife's affections. I don't want Amy looking at another man the way she looks at me ever. Because I'm jealous of her affections. And God is jealous of yours. Money is not bad. Being wealthy is not bad. Being, having riches and being a good steward of your financial finances is not bad. But if you have a divided conscience, a divided heart tug, a divided treasure, a divided devotion, if that's the one thing that's holding you back, then you have a split focus and a split desire. And God's jealous of your desire. God's jealous of your devotion. God's jealous of your discipleship. He wants it all. And he's worthy to give it all to him. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this. He's talking about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following him. And in one of these lines, he says, anyone who puts a hand to the plow then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Growing up working on a farm, they taught us when we would plow the field and drive the tractor, the one way to keep straight lines is to pick a point ahead and to keep your eye on that. If you turn around, if you stop, if you look to the left or to look to the right, you're inevitably the tractor will go off left and right and you'll have a crooked line and a crooked row. The best way, the easiest way, the, the most pure way to be able to get a straight row when plowing the field was to pick a line straight ahead, keep your eye on that line, and go right to it with undivided focus and attention. We've been talking about discipleship the last few weeks. And all of this has been about getting you into God's kingdom, into God's presence, into a place where he can bless you, where you can be fulfilled, where you can have the best life. You know what I don't want this church to do? I don't want this church to produce a bunch of legalistic people that show up to church, that go into community, that serve, and they give their 10% because they're supposed to, because you want to check a box. What I want this church to grow into and to be is a bunch of people that are following Jesus wholeheartedly, and we are called something that the world has figured out this term, called a resilient disciple. 
Somebody that follows God and Jesus not out of legalism because they want to earn something or want something from him. They follow him because that's the best thing, the only thing, the, the, the only thing that's worth living for. This week, that's what I want for this church. As I want us to not follow Jesus out of duty, but out of devotion. Your wife will feel it. Your husband will feel it if you hug them, give them a kiss because you're supposed to. Give them a present on Christmas the anniversary of their birthday because you're supposed to. You know when somebody's treating you like a checklist, as a duty, and that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel like a real genuine relationship. A, a, a healthy marriage is one where devoted to each other. You think about each other. You make an effort to love each other because you love that person and you want them to know that. And we don't want shallow discipleship in this church. We want deep church discipleship that's building resilience to the pressures of life. All of the things that we've covered so far about going to church regularly, making it a practice that I will show up at church, that you will be known by people around you, living community, that you will serve and give your, of your time and your energy to the people to fulfill the needs here, today to give generously, all of those things are basic foundational things that just put you into the way of Jesus. Those are just the things that get you there. Just like saying I, a healthy relationship or a healthy marriage requires uh, uh, you know, no adultery or no slapping your wife in the face. It's like th that kind of like just absurdity of like this is the baseline of what you need to be able to just start this relationship. All of these things are just a good solid foundation for you to begin following Jesus. Guys, I got about four more pages of notes, and we've covered about eight so far. So, you guys good to go to about one o'clock today? <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna kind of speed through this a little bit here. Matthew chapter six, verses nineteen, says, "Don't store up treasures on earth." where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, then there the desires of your heart will be also. I'm gonna jump down to verse 31. Don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously and he will give you everything you need. To quote Richard Foster again, the purpose of the disciplines is liberation from the stifling slavery of self-interest and fear. What are the treasures of your heart? What are the things that you desire most? What's that one thing that's holding you back from experiencing freedom, from experiencing liberation, from experiencing wholeness and fullness in God? What's the one thing that's holding you back from feeling content and fulfilled in a satisfied, healthy life? Our mission statement here is connecting to God, people, purpose, and hope. When you show up to church, you're putting your place to connect with God. When you sign up and serve and go into a, a small group, you're putting yourself in a place to connect with people. 
When you serve, you're putting yourself in a place to connect a purpose. But when you give your money generously, you're pushing back on the way that the world says you should hope for things. The world says that the power of this world is money. That you should hope in your skills, hope in your inheritance, hope in your finances, hope that you can pay your way out of trouble. But what Jesus is teaching is that we hope in God. It's not bad to be rich, it's not bad to have finances. But so many times our finances can pull our devotion, pull the treasure, pull our thoughts, pull our focus away from God. There's a very simple practice, this ancient, called tithe. And we don't have time to go over all of this. But very, very basically, at a very base level, tithe in the Old Testament is a Hebrew word for tenth. It's the principle, it's a, it was that you would give the tenth, the first tenth of your income to God. Go back in the temple, it would feed the Levites, it would uh, make the temple good and whole. Jesus reaffirms the tithe in the New Testament. He says the tithe is good in Matthew. But instead of seeing this rote system of 10%, you actually see them, a principal, a principle of generosity replace this idea of tithing. Where people gave more than 10%, often to fulfill the needs around them. They sold their house, they sold land, they sold things, they shared everything they had so that there was no need among them. We still practice tithing in the new church, in the New Testament church. And the reason that I think it's important that we become a people that tithe is because it keeps you weekly in a place of surrender before God. It keeps you monthly in a place where you're saying, this does not have power over me. This does not hold my treasure. This does not hold my focus. I'm willing to give this and not hope in this and hope in God. It simply is just obedience. The Bible calls for it, and so we respond, and obedience is the thing that pushes you into the presence of God. Obedience is the thing that puts you into God's presence. And when you're there in his presence, that's where blessing comes from. So hear me really clearly. I'm not telling you to start tithing now, and then you're going to get an unsolicited check for $100,000 tomorrow. Because sometimes that's what our legalistic world, that's what we'd like to do is we like to think, well, if I give God this, he'll give it right back to me. Not necessarily. But it does put you in a place for God to act. It does give God an opportunity to show you that your hope is well-founded. It does give God an opportunity to show you that when he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, don't worry about what you're going to wear, I will take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God, then everything else will be applied to you. It gives you a chance to put your faith into action. Consumeristic discipleship says, I want to be able to control every element of my life. I don't want to have to be able to hope on God. I don't want to be able to have to uh, take faith on God. I don't want to take that step of obedience. But a resilient disciple, one that steps into that cycle of mature spirituality, puts practices in their life that will help them grow the direction that they want to go. Amen?